0: All right, let's go back to Genesis again this week. We've taken a respite from following the story of our fathers, and I want to get back to it. Uh, We certainly are told that we need to honor our fathers, and uh, this series of sermons on the subject is in order to do that, to understand them better, to understand how God used them, so that we might give them the honor and the, the due that they have Let's pick it up today in Genesis 37. We covered uh, some of the information about Esau and Edom the last time I addressed this issue. Uh, there was an interesting point that came up afterward. I, I referred to the Dukes of Edom uh, here, and we do have Dukes as an office in the European royalty today. And certainly uh, there are Jews, Edomites, are people who masquerade as Jews, who are actually Edomites, in the banking system of Europe. So they are ensconced there as dukes. But something interesting came to light, and that is that the New King, King James Version calls them, in this chapter 36 of Genesis, chiefs of Edom. And I did point out in uh, verse 28, the Utes, Uze, Uz. Uh, pronounced Utes like the Ute Indians, and in verse 39, the word Peyu or payute is in verse 39, and then down in verse 41, we have Duke Pinyon, like the pinyon pine. Uh, and those are American Indian tribes, or the perhaps the forebears of the Indian tribes, So to be called chiefs might be also uh, as appropriate as calling them dukes because we have them as dukes in Europe and we may have some of them as chiefs here among some of the Indian tribes right around the Utah, northern Arizona area. Just a a little sidelight to throw in there. So let's go on to Genesis 37 because here we pick up the story of Joseph uh, Joseph was one of the leaders among the brothers of Jacob. out of all those brothers God chose to use Judah for christ's lineage. he chose to use Levi as the priesthood which was closely uh, affiliated with the Ju- with Judah and he chose Joseph and particularly Ephraim and made Ephraim the firstborn son uh, in Jeremiah 31, in place of Reuben. So of the twelve sons of Jacob, Judah, Levi, and then Ephraim became very prominent. And as we look at things today and understand, those names will continue to be prominent. So here we begin to deal with Joseph, who had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And you can see how that ties in with us today already, and we have a lot of story to be told. But down the line, realize that what we're reading about here today is something that we're experiencing today, that the prophecies about these particular individuals would have play right here at the end. Now, you wouldn't have thought it, would you? If you had been Jacob... And you had 12 sons, and the next to the youngest was one that would become prominent. Who would have thought it? Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives, and Joseph brought to his father their evil report. So they sent one of the young ones uh, home with a report to Jacob about the state of the flocks and so on and how bad things were getting. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Benjamin was a son of his old age as well, later, Uh, but Joseph was the one he picked out. He was certainly a son of old age, and he loved him more than all his children. Now, there becomes a problem right off the bat, animosity, jealousy, and envy from the others because he was picked out as a favorite and shown to be a favorite. Now, that isn't always bad, is it? Does God do that? Yes, he does. He is going to pick out favorites to be the bride of his favorite son. God can do it. Only God does it in righteousness. God does it for the right purposes and the right reasons. Now, human beings do the same thing. But we don't do it in righteousness. We do it out of selfishness. Then it leads to problems. So, something is not always wrong in in and of itself. It's how it is used that becomes the problem. Food is that way. Alcohol is that way. They're not intrinsically evil of themselves. It's how they are used that becomes a problem. So it is not wrong for God to select certain ones that he will use for certain purposes. He has always done it. And people have always been jealous. People have not gone along with what God wanted done. Instead of looking at what God is doing, sometimes they look at the people themselves that God is doing it with and begin to find fault with them. Ephraim, I mean, not Ephraim, Miriam and Aaron did that. Korah did that. The people in Samuel's day did that. And God said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. So God does what he wants to do. And we must be very, very careful, as we're going to see in that story, that we don't begin to look at men and say, well, they're faulted or they have blemishes or they have problems. He's not a good minister. He doesn't do things right. Or however we, we might want to term it when we talk to one another. We're going the same path as Miriam and Aaron, as Korah, as others if you want to pick some out of the Bible. We must be very, very careful. Because God picked out Joseph to do something with him. Let's see how the story plays out. Now, true, he did love Joseph more than all his children. He was affectionate toward him and had more emotion toward him. That is not necessarily wrong, except that among human beings it creates problems, because we are human. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. He really grated on their nerves. He couldn't do anything right. They couldn't speak peaceably to him. They worked around him. They talked behind his back. But what had he done wrong? Nothing so far that I see. And he led a pretty good life as you go through the story. But his brothers all hated him with a passion, so they could not even speak in a friendly, a peaceably, or a peaceable way to him. Always absolute put-down. And Joseph dreamed a dream. You think that's bad. Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. So not only is this favorite child something that his father had picked out, now it begins to appear as if God had picked him out to do something. So the plot thickens. He's not only a favorite son of his father Jacob, but also a favorite son of God. Now his brothers didn't think he could do anything right. That's the way they looked on him. He said to them, "Here I pray you <clears throat> this dream which I have dreamed." Now, he dreamed a dream. He already knew how they felt about him, but he's going to tell this dream anyway. Maybe he should have felt his peace. All this did was make his plight worse. Now maybe in his own mind he thought, "My brothers hate me because of the way my dad did, but I've had this dream, and he must have thought it came from God. He knew about God still. Jacob knew about God and had taught his sons about God. Anyway, he wanted to tell them. You know, when you're down and you feel inferior and you wanted attention, sometimes you do things to get that attention and it turns around backward on you. Have you ever seen that happen? He said to them, hear this dream." For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and bowed down to my (laughs) sheaf. I don't know how he thought this could help his situation. Maybe he just couldn't help himself. Or maybe he had a little streak of vengeance in him, too, you know, uh, to, to get back at them because of the attitudes they had against him. I don't know exactly what was going through his mind or their mind. Well, I know what was going through their mind. I'm not sure exactly what was going through his. And his brethren said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? They immediately interpreted this sheaves thing as him being prominent over them. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? We're your older brothers. We're bigger, we're older, we're smarter. You're just a young punk. And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. For dreaming it and for telling it. Well, that didn't stop it. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to you to the earth? Now this same thing is used in Revelation 12 the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the tie-in is here to Jacob and Joseph and to his family and to the church at the end time, Revelation 12 being about the end time church. And the world will come and worship at our feet if we become a part of the bride of Christ. It becomes very clear that this dream back here was far-reaching in consequence. It wasn't just about that family. And his brethren envied him. Now, not only did they hate him, but there was envy there because they may have on some level suspected that this dream did come from God and that this might actually play out that way. So with the hatred came also Envy, which is a work of the flesh. Now what happens when this kind of hate and envy simmer a while? Let's read on. His brethren envied him, but his father observed the say. His father thought about it. Now it may have seemed strange to him that his young son would come and infer from a dream that he, the father, and the mother, and all the children, would worship him. Now, how would it have been in your family if you'd have had eight or ten kids or something, and one of them said, I dreamed the dream, and all you guys are going to bow down and worship me. This would have gone over how? (laughs) I mean, even if you were in the church. Is it any wonder that Christ said a prophet has no honor in his own country and he couldn't do any miracles in Nazareth except heal a very few sick folk? That's all he could do because of their unbelief. With all his power as the Son of God who could actually raise the dead and healed all manner of sickness and illness, it was always accompanied by your faith has made you whole. And they did not have any faith in him. He was just that little bastard of Mary's, is what he was known as in Nazareth. She got pregnant before they got married. And that's what they knew of him. And that's what they said of him. It says so right there in Scripture. Not quite that crude a language, but it's essentially the same. Just a fatherless son. So when God looks down and picks people out to do specific jobs on this earth, we might ought to do as Jacob did and think about it and observe it and wait and see what the fruits are. We must be very careful because God is going to lead in the end time very powerfully with some leaders. He is going to lead with a particular church, particular congregation, and most of the rest of the church of God will hate it, they will be envious, they will try to destroy it, they will try to turn it in as a rebel outcrop of the church of God. Ninety percent of those who are in Worldwide Church of God, are going to deny what God sets up at the end time. That we know clearly from Scripture. So this seems to us, when we know the whole story about Joseph, this seemed to us a wrong way for his brothers to look upon him. And yet God had something in mind. Now as the story develops... If you were in Joseph's shoes, I wonder if you would have always maintained faith that God was with you and directing all your steps. Because we're going to find he goes through some really serious trials. And a lot of people who might have thought they were chosen by God to be a part of his church, to do something in his church, had they gone through the things Joseph went through that have said, surely God is not with me, or others would have said, for sure, God is not with him. Had they seen? I suspect there were people who would have said, God is not with Paul when he had been left stoned to death, when he was in prison, when he was shipwrecked, when he was martyred. There would have been many people who had the judgment, God is not with that man. If he was, why isn't he being blessed? So we can apply this right down the line to ourselves today. We may go through a lot of trials, troubles, and tribulations. Does that mean God is not with us? No. He says through many trials and afflictions we enter the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation. So, if we are the people of God, it is a foregone conclusion that we will have trials, troubles, and tribulations. That we will have tests and temptations. That we will have difficulties along the way. That is one of the surest signs that God is with you. Not that you have all the things that you would like to have, but that you are having trials, troubles, and difficulties. That is guaranteed. That is stated over and over. But his father tucked it back in the back of his mind and said, Hmm, that's interesting. Of course, he was lovingly disposed toward Joseph to start with. It would have been easier for his father to accept it than for his brothers. His father knew. That God was working through his grandfather Abraham, his father Jacob, I mean Isaac, and then through him, and that God had promised to bless Israel through his seed. So he had more information that he was working on that he had understood all his life. So when God picked out one of his sons for a particular reason, he thought about it. So maybe, maybe God is working here. Anyway, and his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. So they left there. And Israel said to Joseph, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, but I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. One of the first insights into Joseph's character. Here I am. Or, I'm ready. Or, I'm ready, willing, and able. Now he knew his brothers hated him. He knew they would not want to see him coming over the horizon to wherever they might happen to be. So it was not a job that he probably really looked forward to. But his father said, I want you to go and check on your brothers and see how they're doing. Here I am. Whatever you want me to do, I'm ready and willing. The New Testament speaks of God's people having a ready mind. A ready mind always ready we are to be a living sacrifice so the attitude of a ready mind is one of the most important of the attributes of a true Christian one of the most important attributes because if you are a living sacrifice your life is devoted to God, you have dedicated it to God, then you should be always ready to do whatever it is that God wants done. Of a ready mind. and That does not always come easily. Some people, by personality, are more disposed to be ready, willing, and able. Others hold back. You know, some are there volunteering. Some don't even volunteer. They just jump in and do. So it's those who just see it needs done and jump in, those who volunteer and then are willing, those who have to be asked, those who complain if they are asked but go ahead, those who are asked and complain and don't, and then there are those that you'd be afraid to ask. That kind of runs the gamut of human personality. Now somewhere in there are all of us. And we have to modify our personalities by the Spirit of God and by His power to come to have a ready mind so that we know God is in charge and we're ready to do His bidding, whatever it might be. We are His slave. We, you know, in the Old Testament they pierced your ear and put an awl in it and marked you as a slave. And you belonged to someone then. Well, God uses the same analogy. We are all slaves of Jesus Christ, or of Emmanuel, I should say, I guess now. We belong to him. He bought us, purchased us with his blood. Otherwise, we would die. So, slavery to him is better than dying. And we made that choice. So now we belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We need to perceive who he is and what he is doing. We need to perceive who he is working with and through on this earth to fulfill his end-time prophecies, his end-time work, if you will. We need, the whole church needs to perceive that wherever it is and whomever it might be. And then, as proper slaves of Emmanuel, we need to go there and do all we can to help that end-time work effort, wherever it may be. Now we have today a divided church, lots of different organizations, and each one thinks that it is doing God's end-time work. Right? I mean, they don't think they're not doing God's end-time work. Each of three, four, five, six hundred different groups think they are the one God is using for a specific purpose. It's not that just they're one or two or three that think they're it. Everyone who is a part of any organization thinks that they are in the correct organization. Otherwise, they'd be in a different one, right? So they think they're in the right place but nearly all are wrong. Remember what Mr. Armstrong used to say? The majority is always wrong. And how he would speak of all the churches of the world and say, how could they all, people would say, well, how can all these churches be wrong? And his answer was, how could they all be right? And he was correct. They can't all be right. Now, that makes it very, very difficult, because each person that God called out in this end time has an obligation and a responsibility to find out what God is doing, where he is doing it, and who he is using to do it. Many are content where they're sitting and think, well, it must be here. But I should think that would be a very, very important thing to figure out. Because if you're to be a proper slave of God, then you better find out where God is and what he is doing. It's imperative. And be of a ready mind to do anything you can to help that effort. That's what a living sacrifice does. It's what they're for. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of an attitude, of an approach. Now, we are of Joseph. Not only are we of Joseph, we are, in this country, of Ephraim. And we are, therefore, the descendants of Ephraim and Joseph. And this is one of the things that we need to look back to our fathers and say, this is what I want to be. Here I am, God, use me any way you can. In spite of myself, or however, use me for your purposes. That's where we need to be. That should be our mindset. It should be our focus. Maybe one of the main reasons God picked Joseph out of the brothers, because he did have this attitude. And he came, came even as a 17-year-old boy that he had a ready, serving, giving mind, ready to help any way he could. Even a child is known by his works, as the Proverbs say. So if you're 17, you're not out of the loop or out of the picture. You still need to have the attitudes that are correct. Here I am. I'm ready. What do you need? I wonder how many teenagers there are in America today, percentage-wise, who have the attitude of Joseph. How many 17-year-olds, their dad told them to do something, would say, here I am, dad. Whatever you want. I'm ready. Let's go. Get her done. I think it'd be a pretty low percentage in our population today. At 17, most are in rebellion in some form or another. I only pick on 17 because that's how old Joseph was here. It'd be the same whether they're 13 or 16 or 18 or whatever. And in our society today with our practices, they're pretty rebellious even at 2 and 3 and 4 because they simply are not taught right attitudes from the very beginning and therefore they don't have right attitudes as they get older. Some of you have reared your children more correctly from the beginning, and some of them have a lot better attitudes than they would have had had they not had that kind of training. So it is so very, very important to train them right so that they do have this attitude as they get older, and that we have it toward God. And he said to him, Go, I tell you, or pray you, see whether it be well with your brethren and well with with the flocks, And bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. He didn't know where to go to look. He's, you know, they're out there, and you follow the grass. You go where uh, the flock can eat. Follow the grass does not mean what, did not then mean what it means to some today. So he didn't know, he was wandering about looking. Where are they? Where did they go? Where was the grass good? The man asked him, saying, what are you looking for? And he said, I seek my brothers. Tell me, I pray you, where they feed their flocks. The man said, "They departed hence. Uh, <coughs> maybe here's another good character uh, quality in Joseph. Women basically know men as being too proud to ask directions. Uh, They'll wander about lost for a long time before they'll bow and ask someone else. Pride, ego, vanity, uh, whatever it might be. And those three words are getting real, real close to the heart of the problem. But uh, the price of gas now, you better swallow your pride and ask somebody right away, or you might run out and not be able to buy any more. But Joseph was at least humble enough. He said, hey, uh, have you seen them? Where did they go? He asked directions. So they departed, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him way off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to slay him. Now, you think they had an evil attitude toward him. Uh, this is where it went. That much hate, that much jealousy, just because one was a little more favored than another, or maybe a lot more favored than they were, led to absolute, utter bitterness, and hatred leads to murder. So they were plotting his death the minute they saw him come over the horizon, way off. They said one to another, Behold, this dreamer comes. Come now therefore and let us slay him and cast him into some pit and we will say some evil beast has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams. We'll fix this dreamer. You kill him and then let's see if we come and worship him. So... Sometimes it's not just idle talk. People actually do kill people. And these brothers, overall, planned to kill him. And they were dead serious. Reuben heard it. He delivered him out of their hands and said, Well, let's not kill him. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. So he thought, all right, I'll just get him to cast him into this pit. I guess he was appealing to whatever decency there might have been in them. Let's don't just kill him outright and actually murder him. Let's throw him in this pit and let him die of thirst and starvation. Well, that's okay. We'll do that. We'll go for that. Of course, he didn't tell them. well, I'm going to secretly come maybe in the middle of the night pull him out of the pit and send him home. Reuben had in mind to deliver him. But he bought some time is what he was doing. And it came to pass when Joseph was come to his brothers that they stripped him out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. That was a symbol of his dad's favoritism was that beautiful coat that he had made of different colors. So they stripped that right off and took him and cast him into a pit. and The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. Well, let's eat and drink and be merry and let that dreamer of dreams die of thirst and starvation. But as they sat down to eat bread, they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. They were on a trade route. And Judah said to his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? (laughs) Wonder why it is that Jews are tied together with the idea of making lots of money. It would be Judah who came up with this idea. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content. So they talked him out of immediate murder, let's just sell him. They could get something out of it, and he'd be out of their hair and gone. Then they passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph to Egypt. Now, you would have begun to think if you'd been the brothers at this point, God is with us, he's not with Joseph. We got rid of this dreamer of dreams, he's a slave in Egypt now, we'll never see his sorry height again. Had to have been their attitude. And had you been Joseph, and you had been tied onto a camel, and were being hauled into Egypt as a slave, you might have begun to wonder about your dreams yourself. Is God really with me? You can't always go by appearance, can you? That's why we have to read what God says and walk in faith. Not fear, not be nervous, not worry, but walk in faith. We have the Bible, don't we, to tell us what is going to happen, how it's going to happen, who's going to do it. We have a way of escape lined out for us, and how God and the end-time work that God is going to do through the church, the virgin that he picks out of, of all the churches of worldwide. We have that knowledge. We have that wisdom, that understanding. So what do we have to worry about? If things kind of go up and down and don't look like they're transpiring just the way we think they are at times, or quite as fast as it should happen, or we're going through trial and trouble. There's nothing to get worried or fear about. It's just something to realize is part of the story because God has a way of working things out exactly the way he wants them to go. He is an incredible micromanager. Now, as this story progresses, we're going to find that God used Joseph for a very, very important thing part of his plan. And he's using people in Joseph and Ephraim at this end time to do the same thing. But what he puts them through before he uses them is sometimes very difficult. So, what's the bottom line? You'd better understand the Scriptures. You'd better be following the Scriptures and then Know, in faith and trust, that you will be taken care of because of that. I wonder if this shook Joseph's confidence in his dreams. Or did he just file them away for the time being and say, Boy, my brothers must really hate me. Verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. He must not have been around when he'd gone out to check the flock or something and came back, and Joseph was gone. He returned to his brothers and said, The child is not, and I, where shall I go? He was the oldest son, and he knew Jacob would blame him. They took Joseph's coat, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the coat in the blood They sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be your son's coat or not. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. So they added a plot for murder to a pack of lies. Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave to my son mourning. I'm going to die just like he is, and I'll mourn until it happens. Thus his father wept for him. The Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. Now there's a little story thrown in here uh, about Judah that doesn't fit the story of Joseph, which will be picked up here in a little bit. But God put this in here uh, for a very important reason. So let's look at chapter 38. It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned into a certain Abelamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shuah, And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. So Judah picked out a girl he liked, and she conceived again, bore a son. She called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for her, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So he helped. This, this was happening here, obviously, over a period of quite a few years. Some of the commentaries say that from uh, the chronology through the scriptures, that Judah was only about 12 when he actually took uh, this girl. I don't know that that is the case, but it can be proven uh, very easily that some of the kings of Israel got married when they were 12 and 13 and 14 years of age and started having children right away. I don't necessarily recommend that, but uh, sometimes they did it. But that's apart from the story here. The, the reasons for it and what happened are more important than the ages by far. So Tamar was the one that Judah picked out for his oldest son. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Eternal, and the Eternal slew him. Uh, there have been a lot of wicked people. There were a lot of wicked people back then. God has not always slain all wicked people. If he had always done that, there wouldn't be anybody left today. So, was this man particularly wicked, or was there something having to do with God's plan and purpose that caused him to kill him anyway? I imagine... In that day, you could pick out a lot of wicked people. But there's a reason, we'll see. So Tamar's husband was killed by God, at God's hand, for whatever reason. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to your brother. Now that was the rule that if a man died, the brother took the wife And the children that came from that woman then took the original father's name so that his seed would be prolonged. There would be objections among some of you if your husband died and you automatically had to marry some of his brothers. But that's the way it was done. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. So he realized, if he did what Judah said and went in and took Ur's wife as his own, that any children she had would continue to have Ur's name, not his. And he didn't like that idea. So it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest that he should give seed to his brother. So basically what he did was early withdrawal to be sure, to try and be sure at least, that she not become pregnant. Uh, And this time it worked. Frequently it doesn't, but uh, it did in this case. Now it wasn't spilling it on the ground that was the sin here. It was the attitude of not allowing her to have children with Ur's name. He just didn't want to do it. People have said it's a sin to spill the seed on the ground. Well, it might not be the best thing to do, but that is not the sin that was involved here. It was cheating his brother. He was willing to take the woman, just not to give her children. He was willing to do what a man wants to do, out of his own lust, but not fulfill the purpose that God had put there and that Judah had in mind. And the thing which he did displeased the eternal, wherefore he slew him also. Now this wasn't the first time anything like this had ever occurred either. But God did not want Ur or Onan to have children with Tamar because he had something else in mind. Then said Judah to Tamar his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at your father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. So here was the third one. He was still too young to marry. So he just kind of put Tamar on ice and said, Don't marry anybody else now. You've just got to wait for the third son. For he said, Lest peradventure adventure he die also as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So she went back home to her dad and was going to wait till Sheila got big enough. And in process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law goes up to Timnath to shear his sheep. So she heard via the grapevine that Judah was going to a certain area. And she knew at this time that that Sheila was grown and was old enough to marry. And here she was at her father's house, still living the life of a widow. And she put her widow's garments off from her, so she was still wearing the garments of widowhood or mourning, and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is, by the way, to Timnath. For she saw, saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him to wife. So Judah had promised her that she would be the wife of Sheila when he got old enough. Now he'd gotten old enough and it wasn't happening, so she came up with a plan. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot because she had covered her face. So she put the veil over, couldn't be recognized, sitting by the side of the road a streetwalker, if you will. And he turned to her, by the way, and said, Go to, I pray you, let me come in to you. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. So she dressed in such a way to look like a harlot, but her identity not be known. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? They well, haggled over price next. And he said, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? That's what she was really after. The kid from a flock didn't mean anything. She wanted the husband. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your signet and your bracelets and your staff that is in your hand. So now these were personal items, and your signet was your stamp, your word, like a signature today on a check. Uh, and that identified you specifically. And that's what she wanted. And he gave it her, and came into her, and she conceived by him. And she arose, and went away, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she (laughs) took off the widow garments, put on the harlot garments, now puts back on the widow garments, and waits. Pretty smart, really. Don't know that it's the way to go, but it's pretty smart thinking. And Judas sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. Well, she had insured payment because those were very, very important to him. But he found her not. She was gone. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. There's There's no gal that hangs around here on a regular basis. There's no harlot here. I suspect where the harlots hung out was pretty well known, and I doubt that this was out of character at all for Judah. He probably did this all the time, and that's why she figured she could set him up this way. And he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and you have not found her. Now what? It came to pass after about three months that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. So they knew she was in mourning, she wasn't married, and here she turns up three months pregnant. And Judah said, Bring her forth and let her be burned. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray you, whose are these? The signet, the bracelets, and the staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I. They had a double standard back then, too, you know. Well, if a woman's played the harlot, she's got to be burned. Who did she play the harlot with? You know, you kind of got to have a partner to be a harlot. Now, he had been involved. Did he say, whoever got her pregnant be burned? No, not quite. Double standard's been around for a long time. What's good for the goose should be good for the gander. And he recognized that. She has been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. So he didn't go into her anymore. He recognized his mistake, realized what he should have done. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. Now this got worked out so that she was not pregnant by Ur or by Onan or by Shelah, but by Judah. It came to pass when she travailed. "...that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took and bound up his hand a scarlet thread, saying, this came out first." So the mother's, the midwife, standing there with her catcher's mitt, and waiting for things to go on, and out comes a hand, just a hand. So she wrapped a red thread around it in a hurry, and then it disappeared." came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold his brother came out and she said how have you broken forth (laughs) i just tied a red ribbon on a hand and now i have a baby without a ribbon how did this happen how have you broken forth this breach be upon you therefore his name was called pharez or breach a breach a breach is like in a wall, is a hole in the wall. A breach is a cut. A breach is something that didn't quite go according to plan. A breach of promise means that you broke it. You didn't do it the way it should have been done. So for the hand to come out and receive the red thread and to go back and then for the baby to come out without it first and then the one with the red thread to come later was a breach in normally how things would go. Usually when one baby starts out, it comes on out, and then the other one comes later. But somehow, this one got his hand there, brought it back, and somebody turned on the dryer, and they circulated a bit and came out the other way. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah and there's where the story ends and picks it up with Joseph again. Now, why is this story important? Well, it's important because Christ was to come from Judah. And God chose Tamar as the woman through whom that line would come. Now, Tamar had married in good faith to Ur. She married in good faith maybe in spite of whether she wanted to or not to Onan, and she was willing to wait for the third brother. So she had some good character characteristics there. She was trying to do things the right way. Now, she went to extreme measures uh, with Judah to have a child by him. But she didn't really play the harlot in the true sense of the streetwalker, prostitute type of thing. She was trying to make a point and have a child in the family that she was a part of and she had been cheated. Now, this was her answer to the problem. Now, look at your limited opportunities if you're in her position. You're waiting for the third son and he gets old enough to marry and you refused. So she went to her father-in-law. Might not have been the best solution, but she wasn't a harlot as such. She knew exactly what she wanted to do was have a child in that line of the family. If it couldn't be through Judah's son, she says, I'll go to the old horse himself and do it that way. Now, you can go to Ruth 4, 12 through 18, and see, along with Matthew 1:3, that Judah, through Tamar, was in the direct lineage of Christ. Now, there was a breach here. Zerah was the one that normally would have been born first, because that hand came out And she marked him as the firstborn, in this case, with the thread, because that came out first. And then Pérez came later. He was the breach. Now, where is the analogy here that that has meaning in the plan of God? Remember the story. Satan set out to rule the earth. He set out first be the preeminent and predominant one he rebelled against our father in heaven and came down here to rule the earth which he had been given opportunity to do but he did it in unrighteousness so he was the first to rule the earth and that's like the hand with the thread coming out first now that got turned upside down by whom By Christ, who came and whose kingdom is actually going to be born first. Satan was the first one to stick his hand out there and say, I'm going to rule. Now, Christ breached that. He stopped that. He put an end to that. Satan's plan was and is being foiled as a result of that. So Christ not Satan, is the firstborn of many brethren. God made sure that that child came through Phares even though a hand came out ahead of time and tried to be the firstborn but didn't make it. And Christ is the one who was then actually born first and took preeminence. And he came through the line of Phares, not through the line of Zerah. I think there's a very important symbolism and type here. And isn't it interesting that even by those of this world, Satan is depicted as what color? The red devil. Satan is depicted as a red man. I mean, red, not like a brown red man we call the American Indian. But red. Red. And Dante's Inferno, and, you know, he's got ears and a tail and a pitchfork tail, and he's red. I wonder if that story goes all the way back to the red thread and a red devil. Because the analogy, to me, is quite clear. But who takes preeminence? Who breached Satan's plan, and who is going to be the healer of the breach? Now, he qualified to rule the earth when he was here on this earth, and he defeated Satan in that battle after Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights. But he didn't rule the earth at that time. He only qualified. He deposed Satan from that position, but he didn't take him from that position. So Satan, to this day, is the prince of the power of the air and the the present ruler of this world. He is ruling the world, make no mistake about it. And Christ is sitting back waiting. And he is going to heal the breach. He's going to stop it. So, right at the very beginning, from Judah on down, through the line of Judah, comes the one who made a breach in Satan's plan and who will heal the breach between man and God. That's why this story is in here, seemingly out of context and out of place, just as we start into the story of Joseph. Well, we'll see how Satan worked throughout the life of Joseph and throughout the life of Israel and right on down through the ages to today. So it's a perfect place for this, even though it seems out of place, it's the perfect place to insert the story about the beginnings of the lineage of Emmanuel the king whom we worship today. So with that story in mind, I think it's a good place to stop for today.